0: Well, um, as last week, we saw that uh, Christ the King came to inaugurate the kingdom. He came to establish uh, his rule and reign, to bring it here to the earth. But we also saw that the kingdom is not yet fully realized. We're in this kind of in-between state, this in-between era. We compared this age that we live in now, the age from the cross until when christ returns we compared it to the time frame between world war ii's d-day when uh, the war was effectively decided uh, and the actual end of the war which was v-day just a few months later we're kind of in this in-between phase there's still some fighting going on there's still insurrection going on though the battle has been decided it is also not yet finished and we so we compared it to that it's a great example uh, of this uh, time frame that we're in uh, as God's people and this kingdom that is ruling yet not fully being realized. And um, like the people who were living in that time between D-Day and V-Day, it's true that the war did shift but it also didn't mean that everyone just sat back and waited for the war to actually end. It wasn't like that D-Day came and said, oh, the war's been decided, we can just kind of relax now. That wasn't the case at all. Something still had to be done, even though it had been decided, but there was still work to be done. As a matter of fact, it actually gave them an urgency to fight even harder. There was kind of an inspiration, a motivation to do something so they could really make sure that they could seal the deal, so to speak. And for us now, we live in this age of victory after Christ's death and resurrection, and yet we're still in this age. And as people of his kingdom, his army, so to speak, do we just sit back and just wait for V-Day to come? Do we just wait for the second coming of Christ since we know it's gonna happen? We know it's in the future. He's promised, so do we just sit back and say, well, now we can just hang out as Christians. We know the battle's been won, so there's nothing much for us to do. Is there anything that we must be doing up until V-Day? Today, as we look at what it means to be people of his kingdom as we live in this present age we're going to see that there is much for us to do even though yes the war has been won the battle has been won but it doesn't mean at all that we as christians just sit back and wait because well god's sovereign we know it's going to happen so we don't have to do anything no we know that is not true there's an urgency now church an urgency now that we as his people as the people of his kingdom the people in the lord's army there is much work to be done not to ensure that the war is won, but because the war has been won, and yet there is still insurrection, the enemy and sin. There's still death in this life, and there's work to be done for us. So I want to pray, and as we jump into this text I hope that we are encouraged, inspired, motivated to see that because we live on this side of D-Day, now we actually have great motivation and great hope to, to fight this battle in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning to hear his word, believe his word, have his word go to work in our hearts, to transform uh, our minds, our hearts, and our actions for the glory of God and his kingdom. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this second week of this uh, sermon series, his kingdom is forever forever. We want to have come to mind these truths that that do tell us and ensure us that your kingdom is indeed forever. That the battle has been decided. Your son has conquered. Sin and death have been put to shame openly, publicly. But yet sin and death still fights. Wants to entice us and draw us away from our king. Wants us to follow us into a kingdom of darkness, even though we've been transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun and his glorious light. But yet there's still deception. The deception that gets us in our hearts to wander from truth, to follow the lusts of our flesh, the pride of life, to go after things of this world to sit back and just sit on our hands and expect that other Christians will do the work and we don't have to. But God, we wanna be people of victory. As we've been saying earlier, your name is victory. And we want to live our life under that banner of victory. As we saw last week, we wanna live our lives under that banner of victory. Because you have set us free, we are free indeed. And we want to no longer follow after the lust of the flesh. We no longer want to make excuses for why we continue in the same old sin over and over and over. If we've been set free from sin, if we've died to sin, then we say to sin, we say to death, you're dead to me. I owe you nothing. I'm obligated Nothing to you whatsoever because I've been freed from that bondage, that sin. And we're now alive to Christ our King. And the banner over us is His victory. It's the flag of His kingdom that we fly overhead. So help us, Lord, to believe these truths, these promises, that your promises would be our constitution that that would be the flag that we pledge allegiance to. It would be what we declare as our law, our ways, and what rules and reigns in our hearts. Help us, O Lord. We love you. We thank you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 24, we're going to be looking just at one verse that's going to set the tone the for this particular sermon today. This is an absolutely incredible verse. I think one that we can read through as we read through the gospel of Matthew and we can maybe quickly gloss over, but there's so much to to see in this one little verse. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom this kingdom that's forever, this kingdom that has no end, the good news of this kingdom, this kingdom that's coming and liberate us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of death, that good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. Then, V-Day will come. But the gospel of the kingdom must first be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, to all nations. And until that happens, V-Day will not come. But as that happens and when that happens, then the end will come. That day. The Bible sometimes just shortens the day of the Lord to those two words, that day. That capital D day, that day, V day, when that day comes will be after the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So Jesus here tells us ahead of time, while he was still on the earth, so he had already brought the kingdom, but yet he told us plainly, even though he brought the kingdom, that the very end, the the total reign and rule of the kingdom was not yet to come. So even though he brought it and said the kingdom of of, of heaven has come upon you, but yet he also says that first, the gospel of that kingdom, that kingdom that has come, must be proclaimed for the kingdom to come in totality. And that will be at a later time. But first, he says, the good news of this newly inaugurated kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And so even as he ushers in D-Day at the cross, through his life and teaching, his death, his resurrection. The battle, yes, has been decided, but we now live in this present, but not permanent reality. This is not permanent. Yes, the kingdom is here. We've been freed from sin. We live in victory because of Christ, but yet this current iteration of how we're living is not permanent. The reality will continue, this reality will continue until the whole world has heard the good news, that the kingdom indeed has come. Not only will this age continue until the world has heard that good news, but this age will continue so that the whole world hears the good news. You see the difference there? This age is gonna continue until the whole world hears the good news, because that's the desire of God, is so the whole world would hear the good news that every nation would be represented in the kingdom of God from every tongue and tribe, but also the Lord is going to put off V-Day so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation can hear the good news. If the Lord returned right now, church, many people from many tongues, tribes, and nations would not hear of the gospel and they'd find themselves living separated from God forevermore in the fires of hell. But God's desire is that he would put off his second coming so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, those who currently are living in rebellion against God would have the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus to repent and be saved. So it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy and grace that he puts off his V-Day so that more people could come to saving faith in Christ. And since the kingdom of God is not yet here in totality, in every single aspect, I should say, There are still these hotspots, so to speak. Still insurrections of sin and evil and death in whole people groups across the world, in governments of nations, but also in the hearts of hundreds of thousands and millions, even billions of people. There's still insurrection of sin and death that still goes on in this age. And so it's his desire to see the good news preached to all. And so we have to consider then, if the kingdom is here, but it's also not yet, and if the gospel of the kingdom has to be declared throughout the whole world during this in between age, how then does the kingdom expand in territory, in its rule, in its reign, in its dominion? We see in Luke chapter 13 a great parable that shows us the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, therefore, in Luke 13, verse 18 through 21, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it to? How, how can I explain the kingdom of God to you? Since you can't see it, you people don't understand it, how, what can I use to explain to you what the kingdom of God is like? Jesus was, was very gracious to us in his teaching. He really got down to our level and used very simple things so that we could understand. Very gracious, very merciful towards us. So he uses this example. Well, the kingdom, it's like a grain of mustard seed. It's a tiny little seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? How can I explain this to you guys? Well, it's like leaven, leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So Jesus uses these two examples. First, he says it's like a seed. He also says it's like leaven. The first is maybe more common to us. It's like a seed. The kingdom of God begins very small, very simple, hard to even see, but it grows. Slowly, but surely, it grows. It needs to be watered needs to be fertilized, but it does spread and it grows. Oftentimes you can't see it spread even while it's in the ground. You don't know if it's actually sprouting, but you water, you fertilize. The very nature of the kingdom is like that. It spreads if it's cultivated. But also leaven, something that is maybe not as common to us. For some of you who maybe make your own bread at home, you might understand this, but Leaven is any substance, like yeast, for instance, that causes bread dough to rise and to actually change, to transform. It works from within the lump of dough. You only need a tiny bit of yeast or something, and you hide it, so to speak, in this dough. You can't see it go to work. But leaven or yeast, it it, it spreads throughout the whole lump of dough, and it goes to the very edges until the whole entire lump is actually consumed. It's all been leavened. It's very thorough, the work of leaven. Every single corner of the dough is touched by this leaven, even though it starts very small. And such, Jesus says, is the kingdom of God. It not only grows like the mustard seed, it grows tall into a towering tree, something you can see and expands and even gives a home to the birds of the air, but it also spreads in totality. It's all-encompassing. It is thorough in its work. It's not just visible, but it's thorough. It is complete and it will go to the very edges of anything that it touches. It will expand. In other words, it grows in height, depth, width, and length. It covers everything in its time. Now here's some great news, some good news that makes this cultivation and growth and spread of the gospel of the kingdom of God even possible. So, I love this D Day example that we use because it gives us a great picture of the current battle that we're in. See, on D Day, back in World War II, the Western Front of the war was breached by the Allied forces. At that time, Nazi Germany was fighting on the Eastern Front against Russia, but they held the Western Front. There was no Allied forces coming in from the West, so Germany was able just to fight on one side. They weren't surrounded because they held that Western Front very strongly. And on D Day, that's when those, those beaches at Normandy were, were breached. And all of a sudden, Nazi Germany had a war to fight on two sides of them. And that's what crippled them. They could not keep up their territory, they did not have the resources to fight a, a battle on two fronts. That's what decided the war. The enemy lines were breached. They were unable to keep their territory, to keep their captives, to stay in the nations that they, were, uh, that they were in. They had to retreat. They could not win that war. And so it is for the cross of Christ. We obviously even rightly make so much of the atonement of our forgiveness for sin, and we should. That's what we think about when we think of the cross of Christ, and that's good that we think of that. But something beyond that even happened, something we don't talk about quite as much. In Colossians chapter two, verse 14 and 15, it makes it clear what happened to the powers of evil through Christ's ministry, through his death and through his resurrection, particularly what he accomplished on the cross. Here's what it says in Colossians chapter two, verse 14 and 15. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the part we usually talk about, the justification for sin, forgiveness. This, this debt, set aside nailing it to the cross and we praise God for that truth but look what else he did it says he disarmed he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him now what that tells us is that before the cross they were armed they were armed with something. We don't exactly know all the details of that, but they were armed with something, and all of a sudden, after the cross, they were disarmed. Somehow the enemy has been weakened by the cross in a very real way. Just like with D-Day. Those Axis powers, they were, they were armed. But when that, those beaches were breached, somehow the power and the authority of that enemy was disarmed. Disarmed. Maybe not in totality, but something changed. Distinct change happened to the enemy, both in Nazi Germany as well as in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus did a real disarming of the rulers and authorities of darkness and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus purged all of our sins at Calvary, something else also happened to Satan. Something else also happened to his army. Something happened to his power and his authority. See, before the cross, you don't see the spread of the growth of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament the way that we see Jesus describing it as a mustard seed or leaven, do we? Think about the Old Testament. Where was the kingdom of God pretty much held to? Israel. Tiny little sliver of land on this whole entire globe. That wasn't like leaven spreading to the earth that wasn't like a mustard seed no it was pretty much confined to this tiny little people but after the cross leaven was hidden in the world a mustard seed was buried in that garden tomb something happened at the cross that changed the course of human history not just your personal salvation not just your own atonement for sin But the world is different after the cross. Something happened to the power of darkness. Something very real was disarmed. Before the cross, Satan had a hold on the nations. He held them captive with his armed deceit. Just like Nazi Germany. But the cross changed that. The cross disarmed the enemy. The cross changed everything, church. To use our... D-Day example, the cross broke down the western front of the enemy. He no longer had the hold over the nations that he once had. The evil one lost his authority to keep the people back from God. He could not deceive the nations any longer. But he was bound, handcuffed by what Jesus did. He was crippled. He received the mortal head wound that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. And because of this, the risen and victorious Christ who rose from that garden tomb said this to his disciples in Matthew 28, just a little bit later from our text this morning. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. All authority has been given to me. The enemy has no authority. All authority is given to me. Satan's illegitimate power over the nations, has been wrested from him and placed into the hands of the legitimate king, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior, our King of kings, the Savior of the world. Now that's the beginning statement of what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission when Jesus gives us the command to go, therefore. Now before I read the rest of that Great Commission, I want to look a little more closely at this context of the Great Commission, because in Scripture it's important for us to recognize certain, um, call them maybe literary devices, or certain things that pop up in Scripture. This particular one I want us to notice is what we call, two couple big words, the indicative and the imperative. Sometimes I call them the because and the therefore, but this is so important for us to understand. You can follow along in your notes here too, because I have this written down for you. But the indicative is the truth. So the indicative object or item in scripture is the truth that our foundation is set upon. That's the indicative. Indicative means it's an indicator, it's a sign, it's an anchor for us. It's something we look at as our hope, our inspiration, our foundation. And the imperative is the command. Because of this sign, because of this indicator, because of this truth, because of this promise, Because of this reality, then therefore, we must do this. It's imperative that we follow up on that indicative. Because of this great truth, then therefore, this is what we're to do now. Because of this, then therefore, this. So because of this indicative truth, because Jesus says all authority has been given to me, because you can look at that sign, that indicator of truth, then therefore, It is imperative that you must do this in verse 19. Go. Because all authority has been given to me, I want you now to go. But you don't go in your own authority. You don't go in fear of the enemy and his authority because he has none. You go because I have authority and I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against you because of that indicative truth, because of that, then therefore you now can go into all the nations. You can make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because of that great truth that I have all authority and I've broken the back of the enemy, then therefore now you can go in my authority. But we have to understand we don't go in our authority. That's why knowing the indicative truth because is so important. If we don't know that indicative, if we don't know that because, then we're gonna go in fear and trembling. We're gonna keep quiet because we we think that, well, there's no way that my friend would ever hear the gospel because they're just so lost. Well, you're forgetting about the because. You're forgetting about that indicative truth that the power of darkness has been broken. So we don't have to go in fear. No, we go in confidence and faith and boldness because the enemy has lost his power. And so we can now therefore go because Jesus gives of the kingdom. Then therefore, we can know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're now able to do this because of Christ's victory over Satan, who had up until then long blinded the nations. We can engage in successful mission in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, as we pray for the people that we love, as we pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them, we can engage in successful mission all over the world, bringing the good news of the freedom of captivity to those who had long been under the chains of sin and unbelief. We don't have to fear that any longer. I mean, think about right after the cross, after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul, He went out to all these pagan territories of Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome, and all these journeys were successful in turning these once dark and blinded nations to the saving light of God in Christ, even though previously they were completely bound by the darkness of Satan. Paul even says in Acts 28, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, those pagan nations, and he says, they will listen. Listen. He knew they would listen because he knew that the back of the enemy was broken. He knew that he was living post D-Day. And so he had boldness as this former Pharisee who previously had his own eyes blinded. He went in boldness knowing that, no, they will listen now. Before Christ, no, they would not listen, but they will listen now. Never before the cross of Christ did we see that kind of work that we've seen since the cross. We've never seen the kingdom of God expand like it has since the cross. We live in a different era than pre-cross. And we need to take advantage of that church. We need to start believing that. We get so fearful. We get so timid as a church, as people. And yes, our country is getting darker. Morally, it's getting darker. But we need not fear that. Because we live in this in-between age where the kingdom has come. And we know the victory has been won. We know that that western front has been breached. And so we can storm those beaches. We can go in with confidence knowing that the war has already been won. But like Nazi Germany after the, the Battle of Normandy, there was still fighting. So we do see that. We see it in our culture. But yet, back then, the power and efficiency of the German army was crippled. And they started retreating. They started losing previously captured land and captives. Nations were liberated. Concentration camps were freed. Nazi flags were taken down and destroyed. And the flags of those nations were finally raised above the ground. Freedom and liberation was going all throughout Europe. The enemy was losing its ground and doing it quickly. During that important time between D-Day and V-Day, people and whole nations were being delivered from the kingdom of the Nazi regime to the kingdom of freedom. And now for us, because of the cross, the enemy no longer has this unbridled ability to deceive the nations and hold their previously conquered ground that they had, like we see in the Old Testament. Nations, whole nations are seeing the light of Christ in the last 2,000 years and even now today. The gospel is being brought to the nations, and it has been. And we're seeing whole people groups be liberated from that kingdom of darkness. They're hearing the gospel and believing just as Paul said they would. The Gentiles will hear the gospel and they will believe. The banner, the flag of Christ, the flag of his name, the banner of his word, they're being lifted above all things in countless homes across this globe. And families, and tribes, tongues, and nations. All of these which were once previously captured by the enemy. And I might remind you, church, that we often think wrongly that we Americans, we've got the corner of the market on Christianity because we're a nation born on Christian values and all these kinds of things. We somehow think that we're like the cradle of Christianity. But no, church, 2019 North America is actually the ends of the earth that was spoken of in Acts chapter 1. We are here. You have your salvation because some Middle Eastern Christians believe that the back of the enemy was broken. That is the only reason you're here. That is the only reason you're here. That they went out in boldness knowing that the Gentiles will listen. We have the salvation we have today because faithful Middle Eastern Christians in that first century believed this truth. And now it's upon us, now that we have the gospel, we also have to believe this truth so that we now go, therefore, to the other ends of the earth because there are still are people in our country and across the globe that don't know the gospel, that don't believe the freedom that Christ has brought. And they can't be liberated unless they know. Just like we wouldn't be here unless those first century Middle Eastern Christians decided to go. We have to go. We have to go. Church, we've been given our marching orders. Those troops that went into D-Day, into Normandy, they had their marching orders. And after they won that battle, they didn't stop. Those first century Middle Eastern Christians, those were the, those were the troops at Normandy. The many died at Normandy. Just like that first generation of Christians, they've, they've already died and gone into the ground. We have to continue the work. Those troops that saw their comrades die right next to them on that beach, they didn't just stop. No, they kept going into Europe. We have to keep going into the nations until the end comes, until V-Day is here. But we've got this great promise. This is how Jesus ends his great commission, with this promise. He says, because of this, then therefore go, but he also gives us a bonus at the end in verse 20. Behold, he says, guess what? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In that whole time, he says, church, between D-Day and V-Day, I'm going to be with you. You don't go alone. You don't go on your own authority. You don't have to go fearful, like, I don't know how to share the gospel. My friends aren't going to listen. No, 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 no. No, I'm going with you. I go with you, even to the end of the age that he spoke about in Matthew 24. As long as the gospel is going out to the nations, I will be with you. So how does God plan on accomplishing this? In John 20, verse 19 through 22. This is after he died and he rose and he meets up with the disciples. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. Jesus was killed. The Jews were looking for the disciples, so they were afraid, locking themselves in a room. And Jesus came and stood among them, even though the door was locked, he made him, found himself in the room, and he said, peace be with you. Notice he doesn't scold them for hiding, he doesn't belittle them for having fear, but instead he says, peace be with you. He, he understands your humanity, church, he understands your fear as you pray about uh, sharing the gospel with a friend, he understands that, so he says, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, that was really actually him, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am now sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just send us, he sends us with the Holy Spirit. Church, God could have just unleashed the Holy Spirit on his own to go around saving people, but he doesn't do that. And yet, in another sense, he actually does that exactly. You see, he chooses to use as us, the foolish things of the world, sinful people, saved by the blood of Christ. He chooses to use the weak and the lowly, broken sinners, the ones that he saves. He makes us alive by his sovereign word. And then he puts his Holy Spirit in us, like he does in John 20. And then he sends us new creations. He sends us. We're the ones who usher the Holy Spirit to and fro throughout the battleground. So God does save humanity by his Holy Spirit, but not the Holy Spirit just going around. He actually uses us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're the ones who usher the Holy Spirit around to do the work of Christ. So it's kind of like this. It's almost as if we're a horse, a war horse, and the Holy Spirit is our rider. And he directs us, he commands us. And as a horse, we we obey the voice of our master. And we go throughout the battlegrounds. We don't kick against the spurs. When the Holy Spirit leads us, puts on our heart to pray for someone or speak to someone as a good war horse who trusts his master, we say, yes, I'll go there. But we don't win the war, we're just the horse. It's the Holy Spirit who does the battle. He's the one who rides upon us. He's the one who who dwells inside of our hearts and leads us into battle. But it's He, through His word, who does the conquering. This is not by our own might, not by our own power, not by our own wisdom or persuasive skills, but it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. That's how He wins this war, that's how He sees the kingdom spread. 2 Corinthians tells us that we've become ambassadors of reconciliation. He makes us priests in the kingdom. We're to let our light shine before men so people would glorify their father in heaven. John Calvin said it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. It is our job to display the kingdom of heaven. But remembering it is not up to us, our depth of intellect our knowledge of the scriptures, our ability to argue and prove points. That's not what saves people. Church, make no mistake, you cannot save people. That is not your task. Only the word of God, working by the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that. It is only you by, by being the war horse, obeying the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who wields the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. As we go and we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit going into our life, into our classrooms, into our workplaces, into our families, into our family events, especially now during the holidays, and we go as an obedient warhorse. we say, we will go where you lead us because we trust you, our master. And the Holy Spirit wields that sword of the Spirit through us, yes. We have to open our mouths, but we trust that it is his ability to do battle with the word of God. It's not our ability. We're just, we're willing participants being able to see the work of God and the kingdom expand and grow through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives. Success in evangelism, church, is not conversion because that's not up to you. Your success in evangelism is just simply obedience. You just obey your master. You just obey the Holy Spirit riding upon you, the war horse. You let him do the work of conversion. You just simply obey. You just go and therefore. That's our task. In Romans chapter 10, we read this a couple weeks ago before Casey preached. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, "'Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, "'but how then will they call on him whom they have not believed?' It's not possible. How can people be freed from the the captivity of darkness if they've not even been declared the freedom that they have? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who's believed what he has heard from us. But faith comes from hearing. And hearing comes from the word of God the captives can't be set free unless we go we have to go it means for us that god and his kingdom they're invisible how do you and i make the kingdom of god visible how do we display the kingdom of god it means that right now we ought to learn how to have dominion over our own lives just as that command was given to adam how do we have dominion over our own lives our emotions our bank accounts, our relationships, how we treat other people, how we speak to other people. We need to pray for the leadership and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel to teach us how to have self-control and dominion over our lives so we can put on display what the kingdom looks like in a family, in relationships, at a workplace. We have to learn to obey our master so that we can put the kingdom of heaven on display Because otherwise, it'll remain invisible to those in this world who are blinded by darkness. So what does it look like for you to bring the kingdom to your school? To your job? And your attitude? And your family? And your marriage? And your neighborhood? From every nation to every nation? Every church must be ascending church, and every Christian must be a sent Christian. Doesn't mean you're going to go across the globe but it might mean you go across the street. Every Christian must be a sent Christian. And so going back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I wanna paint a picture for you. Actually, I'm gonna let Job paint a picture for you of the end. How does it end? In Job 19, verse 25, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after I die, yet in my flesh, in that same body that dies and is destroyed, in my flesh, I'm gonna see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another person's eyes. This is curious to me. Because Job says, my skin's going to be destroyed. But yet, in my own flesh, with my own eyes, no one else's, these very eyes that I'm speaking with right now, I'm going to see God. And he's going to stand upon the earth. And he says, my heart faints within me. Something we take for granted in this text is this, is that, see, Job lived during the time of Abraham. Sometime around the patriarchs. Many, including Jewish history, consider the book of Job to be the oldest written text. The stories of Genesis obviously are older, but as far as a written book, many consider Job to be the oldest written book. And Job did indeed live during the time of the patriarchs. Why this is important is because Job didn't have the written story of Genesis. He didn't have a Bible like we have. He didn't have all the prophecies of the later prophets that came. But yet, somehow, he knew that his Redeemer would live and stand in flesh upon this earth. He knew that his Redeemer would be a man. And he knew that even after he dies, he knew that he would resurrect from the dead. He knew that somehow. He knew all these things. What this means for us, church, is that throughout the generations, even starting with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve took that, that. prophecy, that promise that God gave them, that from you an offspring will come, and he will stand upon this earth, and he will free you from sin and death. Adam and Eve faithfully passed down that promise to their children, and their children to their children. And so by the time Job is alive, he knows that promise. No written scriptures, no words from the prophets, but Job knew because his great-great-grandparents passed down the truth that don't worry There's a rescue mission coming to save us from death and sin. There will be a human being who comes to this earth at some point and will stand upon the earth. And though we all will die because of our own sin, yet we will be resurrected and we will behold him with our own eyes. Job knew that, though he did not have the treasure of Scripture that we have. That's amazing, that builds my faith so much, church, because this gospel that we believe today isn't some new gospel. It's not even a new gospel that Jesus brought. No, this is the gospel that's been preached ever since Adam and Eve. And even Job knew that. This gives me such great faith and hope that what I believe is the true words of God because this has been the the truth that's been proclaimed since the beginning. And so now we have Job here. Job looks forward to seeing his Redeemer stand upon the earth. Later on, we see that Zechariah echoes this very sentiment In Zechariah chapter 14, verse one through five, Zechariah says, on that day, that day meaning the day, this end, when Job says at the last, at the last I will see my Redeemer stand upon the earth, Zechariah says, on that day, his feet, this Redeemer's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half will move southward. And then it says in verse nine, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. The same mount upon that Jesus was betrayed and arrested The same mountain where it seemed like he was defeated was the same mountain that later, after his resurrection, he would ascend from heaven or from the earth up to heaven to his father for his coronation as king. And as the disciples looked upon him and just gazed and wondered, a couple angels appeared and said, why are you watching him like this? Don't you know he's going to come back in the same manner? So that same mountain where it seemed like he was defeated through his arrest and betrayal, it was the same mountain that he was standing upon when he ascended to heaven, and it's the same mountain that Zechariah says is he's going to return. And those angels said he's gonna return in that same manner to that very spot. It's the spot where Job unknowingly was saying, My Redeemer is gonna stand upon this earth. Our king's gonna come back from to the very spot where he ascended from. That day is coming as Job knew and as Zechariah foretold. He will return, standing upon the Mount of Olives, looking upon his city that had been so captivated by darkness for so long. And on that day, he will consummate his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, then comes the end when he, this conquering king, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. But only after destroying, not just disarming, but destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until then. Right now he is reigning, and he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed. Again, not just simply disarmed. Right now they're disarmed. Death has no sting anymore. But there is a day coming where death will be destroyed, So the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his, under Jesus the king's feet. And in Revelation 11, as we close on this great truth, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever, amen. Church, his kingdom is forever, amen. Amen, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is such incredible news. It is incredible to know and behold this great truth that your kingdom is forever. That's why your word tells us to, for us to be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken and to offer you acceptable worship with reverence and with awe, because you are God, you're a consuming fire. Lord, we know that greater is he who is in us, that rider upon us, than he who's in this world. The enemy has lost, he's been conquered, his back is broken, you've been given all authority, and you give us the keys to the kingdom. You give us our marching orders. And we now go and we declare the kingdom so that we can see V-Day come. We know, like Job said, that after, long after our flesh has been destroyed, yet with our own eyes, we will see the Redeemer stand upon this earth. And in that day, your name, your kingdom, will be one We look forward to that day. But until then, Father, give us boldness. Give us power. Give us the faith to fight this fight to make the invisible kingdom visible. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us, your faithfulness, and your promise that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth and in our hearts, as it is in heaven. We thank you, Father. We thank you so much. We love you. And in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.